All right, we are finally doing this. Welcome back to uh, Spellbound. I'm Julian Smith. I almost forgot what show we were on there. We're here with uh, Derek Johnson of Global Zero. You're the chief executive director officer of uh, Global Zero. You're also a self-described recovering attorney uh, with various impressive degrees. And uh, you you are out to rid the world of nuclear weapons, aren't you, Derek? I'm certainly going to try. It's a tall order. That is a big mission. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I didn't. I didn't give give Andrew a chance to to chime in, but Andrew's here as well. Hi, Andrew. Hi. <laughs> uh, so we've been we've been trying to we've been trying to get a date on the calendar that works for all three of us for about a month now. So I'm so excited we're finally doing this, uh, Derek. I randomly followed you on Twitter about a month or two months ago or something like that, and I've been uh, I came across you and heard about Global Zero, and I just thought what you're trying to do is so ambitious and crazy and awesome, and uh, I just wanted to you know pick your brain and hear about what you're up to and uh, how you got into all this, you know this uh, stuff with nuclear weapons and like getting rid of nuclear weapons. It's such a crazy goal. How did you, how did you get started with this? What led you to it? And what made you stop being an attorney? I'm just curious. I got so many questions. <laughs> yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's, it's great to, to be able to finally get this scheduled. Yeah. Uh, these, these uh, serendipitous Twitter connections. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I honestly, I fell into this totally at random. Um, you know, I went to, I, I don't have a background in the issue at all. I was an English and philosophy major uh, out in the Midwest. I, I moved to Boston for law school, sort of had it, had it in my brain uh, that I was going to work in policy, but I had really no idea um, what that meant. And, uh, you know, of course, when I graduated, I fell in the trap that most uh, law school graduates fall into, which is having to actually practice as an attorney. Uh, so I, Imagine uh, that. I did some, uh, <laughs> I know <laughs> uh, they tell you it's a versatile degree, but, uh, you really need to know what you're doing when you graduate. And I, I certainly huh. didn't. Um, Interesting. so yeah, I mean, I, I graduated, uh, I was, uh, litigating in Boston first for the city and then for, uh, uh I had hopped over to a, a, a litigation firm downtown and I was just, honestly just, just hating my life. Uh, I was doing commercial litigation, I was. I felt like I was definitely on the on the wrong side of all those cases. My clients were insurance companies. Um, it was mm. pretty miserable, um, and I was not very good at it. <laughs> um, and it really just like crystallized for me that um, I'm not a happy person if I'm I'm not doing something that I I feel is meaningful and useful. Um, so as as uh, as luck would have it, this was in um, 2009 when the economy was in the ditch. Um, so I got I actually got laid off from my law firm job along with a lot of my my peers from law school, and that uh, it was uh, scary, but also just hugely liberating. Um, sort of opened me up to a lot of opportunities that I hadn't considered, um, and sort of one. One consulting gig led to another, led to another that ultimately brought me to to Global Zero. Uh, initially, as a basically as an events director, um, at the time, uh, Global Zero's big focus was bringing together uh, hundreds of uh, these were uh, Global Zero summits. So it was hundreds of current and former heads of state, uh, political leaders, uh, senior military commanders, national security experts, and then sort of thrown in the mix were some. Uh, thought leaders and luminaries who who gravitated to this issue, people like uh, like Richard Branson, uh, Queen Noor. Um, so we were, uh, I was brought on initially to to help orchestrate those uh, events, and that was that was in July. That'll be ten years ago, um, and honestly, wow. I haven't I haven't looked back. 
Um, it's, uh, I, 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 uh, I drank the Kool-Aid pretty quick. Um, and I think the, the more that I, the more time I spend on this issue, the more I, the more I learn about nuclear weapons, about what they do, about the, the risks that we're living with, uh, the harder it is for me to imagine honestly working on anything else. Wow. Okay. So I'm just now putting these pieces together. You'll have to excuse me because I, you know, I, I'm a new follow for you on Twitter. Uh, and then also, uh, I'm just, you know, becoming acquainted with Global Zero uh, for the first time. So I, was, I thought you started Global Zero, but you you worked your way up to running the company? That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I joined on about two years after Global Zero had had its had launched publicly. Um, okay. But, but, so, but when I started, it was a very, it was a very different organization. It was, it was really small. It was like uh, three, you know, three person staff. It was actually a project that existed inside of a, a larger DC think tank that had been around since the cold war. Um, so a lot, you know, a lot has changed uh, in the last 10 years. But. Okay. So just to quickly uh, uh, encapsulate global zero, you guys are out to rid the world of nuclear weapons, and you've got some statistic that you could that I saw before, but you could probably uh, I'm probably going to butcher it, so you could probably correct me. Something like we've it, like 50 years ago, there was like two we we had like 70 percent more nuclear weapons than we have now, and so like it's all it's not that unrealistic to think that we might be able to actually rid the world of the remaining 25 percent or something like that, right? Yeah, that yeah, that's that's absolutely right. Um, you know, uh, it wasn't that long ago that there were seventy thousand nuclear weapons on the planet. Um, it was a crazy time, uh, and you know now we're down to uh, just under fourteen thousand. So we've come, we've really come wow. a long way. Um, it's been you know for sure slow and steady progress over the uh, last several decades, and I think um, right now we're uh, we're a little stuck. Um, in fact, worse than that, we're starting to backslide a bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're, we're, um, you know, theoretically we're in the home stretch. Uh, this is definitely an achievable goal. Um, you know, certainly, certainly in my lifetime. So, uh, what kinds of things are you guys doing to, I mean, I'm sure you're, I know you do like, uh, uh, like I know you've been involved in a number of protests and things like that, but what actually can be done on an operations, uh, standpoint to rid the world of nuclear weapons? Like, what are you guys doing on a day-to-day uh, basis to reach this goal. Global Zero is really focused on a lot of, they call them, tr- we call them track one and a half. So you have like track one, which is when governments are talking to governments. Um, this is sort of the, the official business of states. You have track two, which is um, usually it's, re- it's retired uh, senior officials who are sort of talking um, unofficially on behalf of their governments, but helping to sort of grease the gears. Uh, and then you have track one and a half, which is sort of this weird gray area in between um, where you've got, um, f- you know, former officials talking to, you know, people who have decision making power and trying to trying to push ideas and proposals and get things moving. And that's that's sort of the space that Global Zero operates in, um, in terms of our what are the what are the projects that occupy our time on a on a day to day basis. Um, we also do a lot of uh, public engagement, uh, public education work. Um, I think one of the, um, the one of the, the chief uh, challenges with uh, the the nuclear issue is that um, you know this this was this was something that um, you know really occupied people's minds uh, during the Cold War. Um, you know, people were sort of constantly living with uh, fear of of, of nuclear attack, uh, nuclear war, uh, and when the when the Cold War ended, when the Berlin Wall came down. Um, everybody assumed that nuclear weapons were also on their way out, or at least they wouldn't be a problem anymore. 
Um, but what people don't realize is that um, although the nuclear, the number, total number of nuclear weapons has, has come down since the Cold War ended, we still keep uh, hundreds of nukes uh, in the same sort of attack mode that they were in when the U.S. and the Soviet Union were sort of, uh, diametrically opposed. Um, the, the policies um, around these weapons, the, the rules that govern their use, not, nothing's really changed um, except for the number. Um, and now we're actually where we sort of find ourselves in this um, <laughs> in these dangerous new waters where um, not we're starting to unravel the safeguards that have been built up over the last several decades. You're seeing, um, I mean, first, of the, uh, I think the first casualty of the, the Trump administration on this front was the Iran nuclear deal, um, which uh, which uh, put a lid on the Iranian nuclear program and basically diffused a, a nuclear crisis in the Middle East. Um, we recently saw the, the U.S. pull out of the INF, uh, INF treaty. This is a treaty that uh, Gorbachev and Reagan negotiated. Um, it basically uh, uh, banned an entire category of nuclear weapons, sent thousands of nuclear weapons to the scrap heap, took Europe out of the crosshairs of, um, of the Soviet Union. Um, and we just, you know, we, just threw that, we just threw that treaty in the trash. Um, and now um, there's there's literally one one treaty left between the United States and Russia that's sort of keeping um, uh, keeping some of these restraints in place and keeping um, you know keeping uh, Trump and Putin from being able to go gangbusters on new nuclear weapon or on new nuclear programs. Um, and that treaty expires in less than a year, um, and it doesn't look like uh, there's any serious effort underway to renew it. Wow, interesting. So I wonder, like, you, you guys actually. Um try to sway the opinions of, of, uh, governments. I mean, like the things that come to my head when I'm thinking about this dilemma are like, okay, so are we really gonna like get rid of all the nukes? Like, even if we, you know, take them out of service or whatever, or, you know, uh, make them less dangerous. Like, are we really, do we, do we really think people are going to just like rid the planet of this technology we've created? Yeah, so I think um, if your question is, is your question, can we can we trust that people will do this if they say they will? Is that what you mean, or do you mean that they'll that they'll undertake this at all? I guess I just mean like in the sense that like if you've got some, if you got a file on your computer that you're like pre- you're about to delete it, and you're pretty sure you're never going to need it again, and you know that like hesitancy, you sit there for a second, you're like, <laughs> do, do you, are you sure you want to delete this? And you're like, uh, I don't know. Smallpox you in know. the yogurt tub. Yeah. If you if if I think the um, I think you delete that file if you come to understand that that file is actually actually a virus on your computer um, and it's yeah, and it's that's uh, a good making, argument. It's keeping it's holding at risk every other file on your computer, and that's exactly what nuclear weapons are. And I think that's for us that's the chief task is getting governments to understand that these things are not actually assets; they don't make us safer. They're actually uh, tremendous liabilities. Um, and that will, you know, the, that a world without nuclear weapons is certainly safer than a world with them. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking a lot, Andrew. Do you got something? Because yeah, I got more to say. I just don't want to dominate. I, got, I, I, I have got... a couple of questions in that regard. So, so I think that um, there's a similar case, which was smallpox. And both Russia and the United States d- did keep small quantities of smallpox in the yogurt tub basically in a freezer somewhere, right? Hidden. So so that's the kind of case where you're going to delete the file, but they actually chose not to delete the file, but instead kind of hold it in some kind of containment just in case right. it's ever needed, right? But, but I don't even think that's the case with nuclear weapons because one nuclear weapon is obviously pretty useless. 
Um, I mean, I guess it has some, potentially some <laughs> deterrent effect. But but really, what's happened since we went to many nuclear weapons during the Cold War is the nuclear weapons actually improved and the targeting systems improved. So the United States no longer feels like it needs masses of nuclear weapons to drown any potential opponent in a nuclear war. It really, it, it now just needs to target specific, it's much better targeting, all these kinds of things. So, so it's, it's that the technology for delivery has improved to the extent where you don't need enough nuclear weapons to totally drown the world. Well, we still definitely have that. But but the question is, does the curve extend to zero? And I think the answer is probably not, um, because I cannot, you can slowly go down and, and it makes sense and you're trading kind of deterrency away, right? And and you can do that. You can hold hands and kind of get rid of your own stockpiles, which, which makes a lot of sense. Plus a lot of the ones that were eliminated are basically obsolete. So, so it, it's just kind of, um, you know, an upgrade in technology that, that kind of led that, that decline. But, you know, as in the world today, are people, you know, are nations going to trust each other enough to actually get there? And I think the answer is probably no. So how do you change people's minds on that? How do you, you know, because, you know, it's even like the United States' policy not to, I guess, state that uh, they would never under any circumstances make a first strike because then you kind of lose the deterrence, right? So this is another issue. Uh, even countries declaring that they would under no circumstances ever undertake a first strike, right? So so I don't know. I don't, I, I definitely think it's a worthy goal and I think it would be awesome for humanity. And, you know, Carl Sagan basically said, having nuclear weapons is basically two blind blindfolded people playing in a gasoline filled room with matches. It, it is right. It, it's just like <laughs> yeah. the imminent destruction of all of human civilization is in our hands. So I think it's definitely an important goal, but I just, I, I struggle with whether it's realistic. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, I think on the, so on your, the, the first point you, you made about the United States not needing as uh, many nuclear weapons as they used to. Um, I mean, I, of course, I, I don't think the United States needs any nuclear weapons, but the, um, you know, it's, it, it is true that the, the technology has advanced. Um, but the, again, the thinking has the thinking has not advanced at all. The thinking is still very Cold War. So this yep. is, I mean, this is why the United States has, uh, 4,000 nuclear weapons, um, and is committed to this, um, this idea of nuclear overkill and, and nuclear, uh, supremacy, um, you look down at China, China has uh, a nuclear arsenal of 300 weapons. Our, our arsenal is actually 13, si 13 times the size. Um, China is sort of a, a, a model actor in that they've, they've determined that irrespective of what any other country uh, has in its nuclear inventory, 300 uh, is sufficient to scare, to, to deter any nuclear attacks on their own country. Um, they're not uh, brandishing threats of first use. They actually have uh, uh, a declaratory no first, no first use policy, which means they'll, they'll never be the ones to go nuclear first uh, in a conflict. Hmm. And, and the way that they have structured um, their nuclear force, the way that they um, have, have uh, uh, the way that these weapons are not deployed, they're actually kept in central storage. Um, they're, the, the idea is that, well, they would survive an initial attack and they're available to hit back. And that's what deterrence is. Deterrence isn't uh, about being able to strike first. It's being able to strike second. Um, so that's sort of the on, on the first point. On the second point uh, of, you know, yes, we're able to sort of bend the curve down. Um, but what, uh, um, you know, can we really get to zero? I, I um I think that's 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 a fair concern. I think the the closer we get to zero, the harder it gets. 
Absolutely, because every individual nuclear weapon then becomes more valuable. Um, right. And when you're yep. in sort of the you, when you're in these negotiations, these the, these these chits become just harder to give away, right? But we have a we have so far that we could go before that uh, that is a real issue. Um, you know, we're talking. Uh, you've got United States and Russia have uh, between them have 90 percent of the nuclear weapons on the planet. We're talking thousands and thousands of nuclear weapons and thousands more that have been. Um, sort of sent to the uh, dismantlement line and are being waited that it's they're waiting to be pulled apart right so we have a long way to go the next the the next largest nuclear arsenal uh, is in is UK and 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 China's close so from our perspective from global zero's perspective one of the things that we've been arguing for is what, what we'd like to see is the United States and Russia uh, come down uh, to a level that's uh, quite a bit closer to this sort of uh, second tier of nuclear armed states. Because right now, and we're seeing this sort of uh, happen in real time uh, in the discussions around this New START treaty, which is, uh, which I mentioned earlier, this is the last treaty between the United States and Russia. Uh, it's going to expire in a year. Uh, Russia has said, hey, let's let's extend this. This is this is good for both of us. Let's extend it. We can extend it for up to five years. It takes, it's just simple signature. Uh, and the U.S. has said, no, uh, we, we want China involved. China's a you know a, a growing military power. We're concerned about what China's doing. We want China to join this uh, nuclear arms control treaty. Well, China says you know essentially, fuck you. We've got we've got three hundred nuclear weapons. You've got four thousand. Mm. So we're not <laughs> yeah. we're not we're not right. we're not, not going to be talking yeah. about until you get uh, restraint yeah. or disarmament until you're you're a little bit closer to us. Mm. So you and right. Russia go sort your stuff out and then come right. talk to us. So that's and that like that is absolutely our theory of change is that once you see um, you know U.S. Russian joint leadership, which is certainly in the mutual interests of these countries, once they come down to a level um, that is um, within reach of these other nuclear armed states arsenals, then you can start having a broader conversation. Then you can get China to the table. Then you can get India and Pakistan to the table. Uh, the U.K. Uh, France, uh, Israel. Israel has a small stockpile, though they don't like they don't uh, uh, actually admit that. Um, that's when you can get these countries in, and you can start talking about you know how are we going to phase out these arsenals in a way that is proportionate, so we're all taking these steps together, and no one is sort of losing a, um, a sense of equilibrium or, or security or stability. Um, you know, how exactly you, you make those last final steps, I, I frankly, I don't know. Um, but that's not my job to figure out. Um, I, but I do think that once we get to that stage, that's where this policy, um, this policy problem becomes a real political problem. And that's sort of touches on the other work that Global Zero does, which is, you know, we're in the, we're in the movement building business. We, you know, I don't think that any uh, systemic social change happens uh, without a people-powered movement pushing for it, um, particularly one that's, uh, if you look at uh, historically, one that's uh, led by young people. Um, so we're interested in, in making sure that once we get to this, um, this point down the road, that there is a, a, a movement of people who are actually demanding their leaders to take these steps. Um, because, it is, because it is such a hard thing to do that I just don't, I don't see it happening without that kind of public pressure everybody's apprehensive to let go of their nukes because it makes them maybe more vulnerable to, to other countries with nukes. So it's kind of like everybody's got to do it at the same time, at the same pace, if it's going to happen at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
It's in the, 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 the helpful thing about that, I'm um, sorry to cut you off, the, um, you don't actually have to, to trust that your adversaries are going to do this. We have, we've been doing this, like I said, for, for decades. Uh, we've been chipping away at these arsenals, and that's not a, that's not a trust-based system. That is, that is a, a system that's built on inspection uh, and verification. And if you look at the history of nuclear weapons, there has not been a single nuclear weapons program uh, that has gone undetected by foreign intelligence. Going back to the Manhattan Project, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the Russians knew we were we were working on the bomb. The Germans knew. Mm-hmm. Um, these things, uh, because the the scientific and industrial um, infrastructure required to make these things is so vast, only states can do them, and it's 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 not possible to hide. Yeah, I mean, I definitely hope you're right. I I, th- I think that. Countries act in their own national interest, and particularly for the people who actually control the policies regarding nuclear weapons, I don't see that they think it is in the country's interest to reduce their stockpiles, right? Because what what are they gaining? I mean, you know, is having, you know, 4,000 nuclear weapons more fundamentally more dangerous than having 400? Kind of, yes, in a global conflict, but but not really to the people who are, you know, on the receiving end of that. And, and, yeah. and it's, it's you know, it's the math doesn't uh, necessarily, it isn't necessarily apparent to the people who are making decisions. So as you're right, I mean, if, if all of the United States citizens kind of really advocated for this as the main issue, I think you're right, there could be serious change. But until that happens... I struggle with whether I mean baby steps, yes, and I and I definitely again think this is a totally worthy goal. I just question it's you know whether how realistic it is basically. Um, but uh, yeah, anyway, yeah. Has the has the number of nukes gone down because uh, the nukes are becoming obsolete and people just aren't re- recreate? You're shaking your head no. So it's so it's literally that these countries are just getting rid of their stockpiles. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's no, good. And, and yeah, and it's not um, the 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 question of obsolescence. I mean, a lot of these weapons are um, are old, uh, but they have long lifespans. Right. Um, and when they do, uh, when they do reach a, a, a this the sort of age where you're, um, you know, this the the scientists and the war planners are concerned about the technology, um, you modernize them, which is exactly what the United States and Russia are doing right now. I mean, the United States is on track to spend you know, close to two trillion dollars over. $2 trillion over the next 30 years, yeah. uh, replacing every single warhead uh, in, in the stockpile. Yeah. Uh, which is wow. yeah, well, this, nuts. As you say, one of the progress that has been made, it, it was, I guess, uh, towards the end of the Cold War with the reduction of tactical nuclear weapons, because this is this is something that's super dangerous. I mean, and Trump has even said, you know, what's the point of having nuclear weapons if you're not going to use them, which is, you know, absolutely one of the most dangerous things you could possibly say. Uh, but... <laughs> Russia now is developing yeah. these these like hypersonic missiles that can deliver nuclear weapons. Uh, there's the underwater kind of drones that could attack cities with nukes. All these things. Uh, you're right. There's kind of like a new arms race in nuclear weapons, and that is truly scary because um, as a deterrent weapon, nuclear we- it's not completely obvious to me that um, the world is more dangerous. I mean, it is from the standpoint of we live with the imminent danger of complete. Conf- conflagration and self-destruction, but from an actual violent conflict perspective, it's not obvious how we get there. Whereas something like tactical nukes and small nukes create the possibility of this chain of escalation, right? And so that's what I think is truly dangerous, is is the um, 
I mean, I basically think that nuclear weapons are weapons so powerful that no one in their sane mind could ever contemplate using them, which means that we have to be obviously concerned about terrorism and insane people, <laughs> questionably like Kim Jong-un or something like that, uh, people who have nothing to lose. But a state like the United States or even Russia, I mean, the Russians love their children, too, you know, is the famous Sting song, which is one of my favorite songs. You should definitely listen to uh, Russians by Sting. It's awesome. But but. You know, even someone like Putin or something, yes, they would favor aggrandizing their nuclear arsenal as a deterrent so they could potentially engage in conventional action without fear of retribution. But that doesn't lead by dominoes to escalation where you have a full-scale nuclear war, whereas small-scale stuff with like India and Pakistan, that's dangerous. The tactical nuclear, that's dangerous because it's this chain of escalation. I don't know what my question is. <laughs> well, I guess what do you think about yeah. that topic? And, and how do you deal with those kind of separate threats? Because the strategic threat is kind of the imminent world-destroying danger that hangs over our heads, sort of Damocles. Right. But the real threat, I think, is this escalation thing of, of small-scale tactical nukes. So do you kind of differentiate those two in some way? Do you take different yeah. approaches to those? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I'm, I am, I am very worried about the the, the trends around these so-called low yield weapons, mm-hmm. these sort of tactical uh, nuclear weapons, battlefield battlefield weapons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because um, you know, I think I, I uh, one of our one of Global Zero's uh, leaders is uh, he's the former uh, former head of U.S. Strategic Command. This guy was the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, General James Cartwright. Um, he's sort of uh, died in the wool global zero guy, great guy. Uh, and I remember he said to me, you know, there's, um, there, you know, there's no such thing as a as a tactical nuclear weapon. A nuclear weapon is a nuclear yeah. weapon yeah. is a nuclear weapon. And and once it go, once one of these things get used, all bets are off. Yeah, exactly. Right? I mean, yeah. it, it is this, it is a global sort of strategic game changer. And the you know the idea uh, that um, you can control this kind of crisis. Uh, step by step, once you've crossed that threshold, I think it is delusional. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I don't, I sort of worry less about, you know, these, uh, you know, the Russians sort of supposed underwater, you know, nuclear torpedoes are there, you know, the, these hypersonic missiles don't really, don't really change much um, in terms of like the strategic balance and the, the, the level of risk, but it's these, these low yield weapons. In fact, you know, the U.S. just put uh, a low yield uh, nuclear weapon on on its subs um, this year. Um, I'm worried about that mm-hmm. because those weapons are more tempting to use yeah. first. Um, if everybody had a no first use policy, you know, I'd, I'd feel a lot better. But we don't. Yeah, um, scary. Uh, very few countries. Do, <laughs> very few countries do. Um, you know, so the fact that these weapons are available to us, and if you look at if you look at uh, the Trump administration's uh, 2018 guidance on uh, on nuclear weapons, they've actually loosened the rules uh, around when we would consider using y- using nuclear weapons. I think for a long time, and most hmm. most people assume that you know the the. The reason we have nuclear weapons is that so no one else will use the weapons they have. Right. That's not exactly. actually what the policy says, right? Like we've it, we've actually written out a number of scenarios where we where we would entertain the use of nuclear weapons even in response to a cyber attack. Yeah, crazy. And, and the yeah. and the, the, the first the first use of nuclear weapons invites a nuclear response. Yeah. Uh, and once that happens, it's just it's just impossible to control that. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I. I Go, Go ahead, ahead, Julian. You, you, yeah. Okay. okay. No, no, I got another line of questioning. I got but, something yeah. that goes back to earlier that I want to get closure on. So, uh, Derek, you were saying <laughs> you were saying earlier that uh, 
that Israel doesn't even admit that they have nukes. And yet somehow you know that they do. And I'm not sure how like privileged that information is. I'm assuming I'm assuming there's that you could probably find that somewhere on the internet, even though they deny yeah, it. Yeah, it's widely known. It's widely known, yeah. 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 Everybody but yeah, but knows. everybody knows. Being, it's a poorly kept secret. <laughs> yeah. Basically. Well the the point is the, the point is that how you know if if we've got entire you know, governments denying that they've got nukes and, you know, we're trying to get everybody to get rid of their nukes. You know, it's this, we kind of, we kind of hinted at this earlier, but like, we never really got to the bottom of it. Like, how can we be sure that, you know, people are really going to be getting rid of all the nukes? Like at the end of the day, if, if we've, so if we've, we've already got governments denying that they've got them, but they do. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and again, that, I think that comes back uh, to what I was talking about before is just, uh, inspection, inspection. Uh, inspection, verification, um, and, um, you know, the intelligence activities. Um, that's that's how you know um, uh, nobody's cheating. It's about transparency, uh, I guess. And, yeah. Is it, yeah. Isn't it kind of um, just like a multi-step Voluntary process? and reinforced, right? I'm oh, sorry. It's kind of, I think it's kind of just like a multi-step process. So less is better than more. So you just try to do it in phases kind of thing. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. In fact, um, you know, the, uh, the, the plan that global zero has put forward is a, is a four phase plan, um, uh, to basically to, um, to retire all nuclear weapons, uh, uh for military service by 2030. And then, uh, take another 15 years to, to verify the, the actual dismantling of these things. So, Derek, you said that there's no difference between a tactical nuclear weapon and like a, you know, like a crazy nuclear weapon, like a huge, uh, you know, thing that could. Uh, and I'm and I'm wondering, like, is is there no difference because they can both do the same amount of damage, even though they're different uh, sizes or, you know, I don't really know how nuclear nuclear works. I get like I've seen Chernobyl, so <laughs> pretty much an expert, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, the uh, but is it is it that you know, a tactical nuke, is it just so devastating to the area that it just like sets off a chain reaction or something like that? Or is it, is it just that a tactical nuke still puts out a huge explosion or what is it? It, it is true that, uh, weapons that are categorized as tactical, um, are going to have a, uh, they have less destructive force, right? It's a, it's a much, it's a smaller explosion, but even the, the smallest tactical nuclear weapon is orders of magnitude larger than the, the biggest conventional bomb. You know, the, the mother of all bombs, the Moab that uh, made the news like, you know, a couple years ago when we dropped it in Afghanistan, like that is, that's nothing compared to the smallest uh, okay. nuclear weapon in the arsenal. Okay. Right? But it's, it's less about, it's less about the, um, the size of the mushroom cloud and more about the fact that these weapons are just in a completely different category. These are not just normal weapons. They're um, they're they're political weapons. They're strategic, and it is very very difficult to imagine that if the United States were to uh, or any other government were to use a you know one of these so-called low yield weapons, um, that another government on the receiving end of that is going to stop and say, okay, well let's like let's assess how let's assess how big that fireball was. Mm -hmm. You know how how high does the mushroom cloud go before we decide what we're going to do in response. It's just, if it's nuclear, the response is going to be nuclear. That's the real danger. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. We're coming right back. I promise. So these things were developed basically during the Cold War when the United States was vastly outclassed in terms of actual ground personnel, in terms of army in Europe. So the fear was that the Russian army would invade Western Europe from Eastern Europe where they could 
controlled. And because the United States couldn't hope to defeat the Russian army on the ground, the idea was that you would just, the Russian tanks and the, and the soldiers start coming and you just basically set off nuclear blasts to kill all the soldiers and destroy all the tanks, right? So it was a defensive weapon developed during the Cold War to prevent the Russian army from overrunning Europe, right? And this is kind of why I think that, you know, we talked about China, for example, as having 300 and restricting themselves. But I think that the reason is because that is within their foreign policy goals. I mean, China has the largest conventional army in the world. They are restricting themselves to uh, goals in their immediate region. Where the United States is a global player, whereas China is a, is a regional player. Their foreign policy goals in terms of aggression include maybe dominating Southeast Asia trade, uh, Taiwan, invading Taiwan, uh, you know, controlling the Korean Peninsula, preventing nuclearization there and uh, of South Korea. Uh, you know, so so all of in, in Japan, uh, preventing nuclearization of Japan. So all their goals are sort of commensurate with with having a, a limited retaliatory only nuclear policy. Whereas the United States is a global player which seeks to uh, control or at least uh, um, ensure like freedom of the seas all over the world. I mean, it's basically kind of the international police force. So from that standpoint, it's, they just have vastly different goals, foreign policy goals, which are consistent with their nuclear policies and arsenals, right? So, so isn't it more that China is not kind of just being um, self-sacrificing in, in limiting itself, but it's just developed a nuclear policy that's commensurate with its goals, particularly with what's the point of it spending tons of money developing this large strategic nuclear capability when it knows uh, it could never hope to compete with the United States in that regard. So it's just kind of saving a bunch of money <laughs> at the same time, right? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a fair point about um, about why, ch- you know, why China may be where, it, where it's at. Um, I don't agree uh, that U.S. nuclear policy is, around, is aligned with U.S. Uh, uh, sort of the U.S. role in the world or its foreign policy goals because uh, nuclear weapons um, uh, uh, don't operate in service um, of those goals at all, mm. and, and are in fact are um, uh, you know totally useless uh, in terms of dealing with uh, the the challenges that the United States has on on a global level. Like you're talking about, you know, ensuring freedom of the seas. Well, we're not going to use nuclear weapons to ensure freedom of the seas. No. The fact that we have them doesn't make that job any easier. Um, so, so I mean, like for example, the reason I think why the United States hasn't adopted a no first strike policy is because it wants to use it as what it at least thinks that sort of the the strategic decision makers have decided that by doing that it would kind of back off this this amount of threat, right? It would back off this amount of deterrence. So then it would open the avenue for Russia to say, oh well, the United States won't attack us first, so we're going to launch this massive cyber attack that's going to cripple U.S grid and infrastructure without fear of any kind of nuclear retaliation at all, because this is the United States policy, right? So it's kind of like, yeah. it's just an asset that you I mean, I think that wink, wink, nudge, nudge, uh, for the most part, the United States kind of de facto has a non-first use policy, but they won't actually go come out and say that because it's giving up this potential deterrent to other massive strikes, right? Like, like the let's say there was a... <laughs> a biological, uh, let's say you know, the Russia used this biological weapon or something that killed a large number of Americans. America would want to preserve that potential. I mean, it's kind of illogical, but the whole idea of nuclear weapons is illogical, right? So from the standpoint of, it's, yeah. it's just, it's all about just deterrence, right? And and so backing yeah. off on a first strike 
is is giving up a deterrent. Uh, yeah, that's certainly that's certainly one of the arguments that's that's been made. Um, but I think that um, that assumes that uh, only nuclear weapons can deter and totally ignores uh, America's vast conventional superior military superiority uh, relative to literally every single pl- country on the planet. I mean, you, you mentioned you know China having the biggest army in the world. They still don't stack up in terms of. Um, uh, total military might. In terms, of, in terms of a land war in Asia, they certainly would. But but it, it depends on the circumstances. Yeah. In terms of being able to deploy aircraft and, and air forces and uh, troops around the world, overseas, stuff like that, China is, is has nothing on the United States. But in terms of, I mean, the Korean War basically resulted in standstill because the United States had air superiority and naval superiority and all this yeah. stuff and were able to in, indefinitely defend the Korean Peninsula, the southern Korean Peninsula. But China had infinite reserves of manpower that the United States could never hope to overcome, right? So it's it was this uh, stalemate, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I guess the, the the point I'm trying to make is the the idea that if you know if the U.S. subscribed to a no first use policy, um, as I advocate, it should. Um, the idea that then we're now vulnerable to, um, for instance, a, a Russian cyber attack. Uh, because they're suddenly uh, free from from worry about what the United States is going to do in response, I think that's just I think that's just nuts. Um, given the given the conventional options uh, at the disposal of, of of every commander in chief, I mean, we could uh, the the punishment for such an attack uh, is still so vast that it, it establishes deterrence. Uh, conventional t- deterrence is is as effective, I I think. Uh, as nuclear. Yeah, for, I mean, for what it's worth, I agree with you. I'm just trying to play devil's advocate and explain yeah, why yeah. I think the United States hasn't adopted this policy. I would actually like you the know, United the, States to adopt this policy. So, I mean, yeah. the, the other, the other, frankly, the other big problem, um, you know, the, the, the Obama administration uh, looked at this uh, in the sort of the, the, the waning days of the administration and, and ultimately um, uh, didn't adopt it because they, uh, the I mean the official line, which I think is right, is they ran out of runway. They uh, they encountered resistance among U.S. allies who were worried. Well, what does this mean yeah. about us? Are you going to come and does protect this mean us? You're, yeah, you're yeah. not you're not willing to you know the, these countries sort of live underneath the uh, U.S. nuclear umbrella. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. But the Baltic states, and, for example, uh, you know, would that open up? The yeah, you yeah. know, there's there's this is exact same fear. Well, if you're not going to uh, threaten to use nuclear weapons first uh, on our behalf. Yeah. Um, then we're suddenly vulnerable, mm-hmm. which I think, A, ignores, again, uh, the conventional deterrence. Uh, you know, I think extended deterrence, which is this, uh, the what the nuclear umbrella serves, can be fulfilled with um, any number of conventional options. But it, it also ignores the reality that we are, we are never going to use nuclear weapons first on behalf of another country. We're, ne- we that's, are that's never going to sacrifice. Wait, wait, nudge, nudge. We're never going to sacrifice <laughs> yeah. Los Angeles to save Seoul. Like, well, that's never exactly. So that's why I think de facto everyone kind of understands tacitly that the United States does kind of have a no first strike cap- or no first strike doctrine. At least we kind of hope and think. But but coming out and saying it is not the same thing. And I think people feel strategic planners feel that that is giving up something. Yeah. 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 They absolutely do. Um, I'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate a little more here and ask if I th- you, you like that, don't you? Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I'd say I'm actually an optimist, but, but the other thing is I question whether, um, 
eliminating nuclear weapons is actually a good thing that would lead to world peace. Um, and I'm sort of divided on this because the fact is the Cold War was cold for a reason. And the, the primary reason was probably nuclear weapons. If it hadn't been for the United States and the Soviet Union for having the ability to destroy each other's cities, it's quite possible there could have been a conventional war in Europe or the Vietnam War could have escalated or a Cuban Missile Crisis or something. Like, it's quite possible the Cold War could have become hot. And I think that there was a sort of and, and what nuclear weapons did is it restricted it to proxy wars in Vietnam and Afghanistan and things like this uh, and in Korea. And there was this sort of self-restraint. And I know that self-restraint is not a good thing to rely on to you know safeguard humanity against calamity, against obliteration, basically. But but uh, I think in the Cold War, it kind of was effective. And even to the, in today's world, it, it, it may actually be effective. The fact is that we haven't seen large-scale conventional war since World War II. I mean, we've seen small-scale interstate conflict. We've seen proxy wars. We've seen anti-terrorism operations, all this kind of stuff. But quite human nature hasn't changed. And conventional weapons have become more powerful. And probably, I think, the reason we haven't seen large interstate conflict, and that's not to say we won't ever, I mean, you know, let's hope we don't, but probably the reason is is the nuclear threat. Like, mutual assured destruction is actually a crazy, but actually also somewhat effective idea that that probably has restrained uh, the world from engaging in large-scale conventional war between states. Yeah, I mean, I, this is a, this is an argument I hear a lot. There's just no evidence to support it. Uh, correlation is not causation. Um, there's there's literally there's literally no evidence to to support um, the idea that the world is more peaceful now because nuclear weapons exist uh, than it than it would be without them. The, I think it's I think you're I think it's it's um, uh, even the Cuban Missile Crisis say, is, is, is somewhat of an example of that, where uh, the nuclear the, the leaders got together, Khrushchev and Kennedy, and said, "Hey, by the way, like we should step down from this uh, destruction of all of humanity." Whereas it could have resulted in a shooting war in Cuba uh, if it yeah. hadn't been for nuclear. I mean, it could all. It I mean, also could have sort of caused the crisis could've... at the same time, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis to me is not. Um, not an example of uh, nuclear weapons gone right. I mean, to me, that is a that's an example um, of uh, that's case in point that deterrence is uh, deterrence can fail. Um, Certainly, they, you, know, you, you had you had Certainly. rational leaders on both sides of that um, that conflict prepared to use nuclear weapons. Um, the fact that they didn't has a lot more to do with luck, I think, than anything. Um, so I, I just I just don't uh, I don't I don't I don't put a lot of stock in that. Um, but I will say I will I'll concede the point that it um, the that nuclear weapons could could very well have had a stabilizing effect during the Cold War. Um, I think that was a very particular um, uh, particular moment uh, in human history um, that uh, uh, is has isn't replicated in today's sort of geopolitical world. I mean we're, we're we don't live in a in a in a bipolar world anymore. We live in a multipolar world uh, with uh, multiple nuclear armed states. Um, we're looking at um, uh, uh, we've we've got uh, multiple uh, nuclear flashpoints around the world. If you look at you've got U.S. Russia, uh, you've got India, Pakistan, you have U.S. China, you have what's happening on the Korean Peninsula. You have we're at a sort of moment, uh, a unique moment in history, I think, where the world is grappling with multiple nuclear flashpoints simultaneously. Any of these things, all these things are sort of simmering on a low burn, but they could boil over at any moment and also simultaneously. And we're we're not prepared to to handle that. And the idea that 
that that level of risk um, is uh, a better deal uh, than the possibility of a world without nuclear weapons where conventional war may break out. Yeah, I would, I'd, I would take that. Um, uh, you know, I, th- I just think we're in a, we're a moment now where in, in every nuclear armed region of the world, the, the potential for literally a civilization ending planet breaking catastrophe underscores every conflict, every confrontation, every, every misidentified blip on a, on an early warning oh, yeah, network yeah. that carries, that carries existential nuclear risk. Yep, yep. Uh, and we're, we're dealing with that every day. Yeah. I mean, for what it's worth, I mostly agree with you. I just have trouble wrapping my head around the idea that it's realistic. I mean, yeah, it's, it's kind of, Andrew does this to everybody. Don't yeah. listen to him. <laughs> no, no, no. With this one in particular, with this one in particular, because um, human history has been a series of conflicts, particularly conflicts between states. European history for the last thousand years has been just the cycle of boom and bust. And, and I, I actually do think nuclear weapons have been um, uh, a serious factor that has prevented interstate conflict um, in the last, since World War II. However, at the same time, I acknowledge that, you know, if it ever did happen, it would be so much worse that uh, probably it's, it's a balance of risk, right? I think that a world without nuclear weapons would actually be more dangerous in terms of small-scale conflict that would cause, you know, normal kind of whatever normal is, but kind of conventional war-type damage. Uh, whereas... Um, a nuclear armed world is there's less chance of sort of conventional interstate conflict, less chance of war. Uh, but if it ever does happen, God forbid, the, it would be the I mean, the end of humanity, essentially. And so I kind of think you're probably right on the risk calculus that, that no nuclear weapons are better. But I don't think it's a it's a, you know, all versus nothing thing. Well, let's let's examine this this uh, this devil's advocate logic here. So. Derek, I, I'm just, you know, again, we've established I'm an expert in uh, all things nuclear already. So uh, <laughs> uh, about how much stronger is a nuclear bomb than just your typical like run of the mill like bomb that's a major threat? Yeah. Um, so like thousands of times stronger? Like millions, basically. A modern let one me, is like millions. <laughs> let me, yeah, let me, let me paint for you a picture. Um you know, imagine over imagine over an area equivalent to a thousand football fields. Okay, a thousand football fields, a fireball forming out a mile in every direction. Um, in that fireball, the the temperatures are going to exceed twenty million degrees Fahrenheit. That is that is hotter than the surface of the sun. So every living thing in that you know two mile or in that one mile radius uh, is going to be every every living thing, every human structure instantly vaporized. There's nothing. There's nothing left. Ash. Uh, the subsequent blast from that fireball is going to completely demolish everything uh, within two miles. Um, beyond beyond that range, you're only going to have sort of that really heavily, like heavy concrete fortified buildings are going to be sort of barely still standing. But of course, everything inside of them is going to be dead and destroyed. Um, and essentially, everything is crumpled within a distance of, of three miles of the center of that blast. Um, within within a couple of hours, you'll have thousands of fires that have been ignited by that blast. They're going to coalesce into a massive firestorm that consumes an, that can consume an entire city. And a, and above that firestorm, you've got a deadly radioactive uh, plume that's stretching hundreds of miles 
poisoning literally everything in its path. So this, if this happened in Manhattan, that that uh, that radioactive fallout would reach Boston quickly, depending on. Sorry the to interrupt, but is this is this thousand football fields uh, picture? Is this is this a tactical nuclear weapon you're describing, or like a major one, or does it not matter? This is this is comparatively modest. It's it's not certainly not a tactical weapon, uh, but this is you know this is a modest uh, you know intercontinental nuclear missile. Okay. Um, and let me just I just want to drill down a little bit more uh, because this is where I think it's really important to understand uh, the difference between this kind of weapon and another is you know the fact that in that in the first few seconds um, of that explosion you're looking at 1.5 million people dead instantly. These are, uh, and then you've got another probably 1.5 million people. These are men, women, children who are living or working within within probably seven miles of that uh, uh, of that blast. Uh, they're going to spend the next several hours or days uh, dying agonizing deaths from third degree burns, crush wounds, uh, and acute radiation poisoning. Um, no one is going to be able to help them because the emergency responders will also be dead, and all the hospitals will be gone. So you've got three million people dead from one weapon, one. That is a, and I'm t- I'm telling you, that's a single, relatively modest yield nuclear weapon detonated in a in a densely populated city. So if 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 the United States sent one of these into Moscow, just one, that's what happened. And right now we aim 150 of these at Moscow. So in the first day, you're talking about a death toll that is six times greater than all the lives that have been lost in eight years of war in Syria. So we've got these aimed at Moscow nothing. right now. Yeah, yeah. Yep, for sure. There are 150 aim points in in the city of Moscow right now. Okay. With a nuclear weapon on each. All right, so so we're we're trying to, we're, we're, there's a couple of objectives here. One, I'm just curious about these these points. And two, we're trying to explore the, the merit of the idea that nukes actually might have made the world safer in some weird roundabout way, as Andrew suggested. so. Well, uh, the, the, the point is, the devil would say that the more destructive they are, the more effective they are as deterrence. So it's well, mutual sure destruction. That's kind of what I'm kind getting like, at. That's kind of what I'm getting point. at. I mean, but it seems like... Now, but it seems, I, I, I actually agree with you that, that, you know, the calculus says that the kind of overall risk is probably lower in a world without nuclear weapons, despite the deterrence effect. However, I don't think it's, you know, completely obvious that, that that's... True. Yeah, you're you're saying it. Um, I mean, not, for example, you're like, saying you agree, but so, you don't think it's played out that way. No, Andrew. I I would say it's. A, I agree, but it's hard to get there, and I wonder if it's even realistic to get there, and I wonder if strategic planners who who are in charge of making these decisions would agree that the calculus is in favor of, of limiting all the nukes, particularly when nations act in their own interest and everyone has to do it together in lockstep. I think reduction, uh, definitely possible. And obviously, 150 nuclear weapons pointed at Moscow is absurd. But, uh, you know, I would like to get there, but I, the path ahead is really thorny. That's all I'm saying. Um, and, and so the other well, thing is hey, follow-up question here. So, so, follow-up yeah, question before yeah, yeah. we get too far from it. Follow-up question. So uh, it seems like the, the picture that you painted, Derek, of, of nukes and how destructive they are, it sounds like they're just unnecessarily destructive. Like they're just like pointlessly destructive. Yeah, totally. Is that yeah. fair? Yeah, yeah. So there are better, there are better, more arguably precise weapons we could use to defend ourselves. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, di- nuclear weapons are are, are dinosaurs yeah. in, sort of right. in that sense. I mean, they're they're huge. They're they're and they're hard to use because they are so big, um, which is which is the particular danger I see of these low yield weapons. Um, where in the you know the trend in modern warfare is smaller, s- smarter, more precise, more surgical. Um, so in that sense, yeah, they they um, they're not uh, in terms of actually uh, uh, protecting yourself. They're not you know they're not that great. Okay. So, I mean, and this is a stupid question, uh, and you know, there are no stupid questions, only stupid people. So excuse my ignorance. Uh, but (laughs) there, you know, it seems like, uh, the only time you'd want to use a nuke is if you wanted to just like level an entire group of people. And like, I guess the question is, are there, are there non-nuclear bombs that can already do that? Seems like there would be. Um, you know, if, if your if your goal is to is to um, kill a bunch of civilians, this number of civilians, no, this is this is the weapon of choice. Okay. Um, if your goal is to um, wipe out the the senior government leadership uh, of an adversary, so they um, to um, you know bring a bring a conflict to a swift end, yeah, absolutely. There are, there are a lot of other options uh, available to you that are going to get that job done. Can you know prompt prompt global strike gets you pretty far. Um, only for the United States, though, because no other nation has air superiority. So the thing is, like, the reason why ballistic missiles were invented is because the United States is remote and had air superiority, so the Soviets could never hope to actually deliver a conventional weapon to the United States. Therefore, they had to invent intercontinental ballistic missiles, which could not be intercepted and could deliver direct weapons. That's the whole idea of Sputnik. I mean, the whole point is that, actually, if you're inferior in the air, if you cannot deliver conventional weapons, you still may be able to deliver nuclear weapons. And that's why it's it's almost like the weaker party is more interested in having the nukes. In fact, it definitely is that case that the weaker party is more oh, interested in having nukes. That's why Iran would want nuclear weapons because then it could pursue conventional actions and stuff like that. No, it's not even that. It's a, it's a deterrent. So, so what it is, is if Iran has a nuclear bomb, they say, okay, we're going to, you know, engage in this interna- interstate conflict. We're going to invade our neighbor. We're going to engage in this terrorist operations. Don't try to stop us or we're going to let off the nuke, right? I mean, that's all it is. The thing is, once you use yeah. that threat, it's useless. I mean, the whole point is just having this threat. It's so destructive. The only point is to say, don't fuck with me or I'm going to kill all your civilians. That is the point of a nuclear weapon. It's, it's mm-hmm. like the logic behind it is actually to not use it. Right. <laughs> yeah, but and that that lot and that unfortunately that logic requires that we carry on forever without making a single mistake, absolutely, without making a single right. miscalculation, yep. without there right. being yep. any accidents. It's, yeah, absolutely. And that's what yep. that's what's so crazy. It is. I mean, it if, is if ridiculous. Deterrent, I agree, but but it's yeah. kind of it yeah. has a sick, maniacal, crazy logic to it. That that's the that's the thing uh, behind nuclear weapons. It, uh, it absolutely does, which is why we still have them seven years later. Right. Yeah. This this in sort of entrenched, insidious thinking. It is it is very hard to root out, and I I think your your skepticism about how we how we make it those final few steps is totally justified. It is it is hard to see. Um, you know, I just I just happen to think that we can we can get there. Well, yeah, yeah I mean, well, and, and I totally agree. So something is better than nothing. So so I mean, I mean, if you reduce the nuclear weapons, we're by definition safer. So I mean, it's it's totally worthy goal. Uh, I, you know, I just struggle with the foreign policy elements of, of it, but I think that it is realistic to. Uh, you know, slowly phase them out, I think. I mean, and I hope we're able to do that. 
and and eventually maybe end up with the world where where they really don't exist. Yeah. So Andrew, when are you just going to come out and tell us you have a bunch of nukes in your garage that you're trying to keep? <laughs> oh yeah, no, definitely. Not. Uh, yeah, but it's it's kind of like I mean, it's, since you're such a big like fan the, of nukes and all. No, I'm not a, at all a fan. I'm just trying to explain joking, the challenges behind it. I, I think you know it's yeah. like the yogurt tub with the smallpox. People are never going to completely give it up, but uh, because then yeah. someone else can just develop it, right? And then uh, so anyway, it's is it's, that true though? Can, can, if if we were to rid the world of nukes, I mean, obviously, like with enough money, somebody could do whatever they wanted. But like, does doesn't it take a decent amount of? Uh, uh, infrastructure and technology and money to create a nuke. I mean, you, Joe Schmo can't just create a nuke, right? It's like a no. You can. Um, I mean, any any well, not any, but um, uh, you know, a grad student could could put together the actual bomb, right? You could find the parts that you need, build, and you could build it in your garage. But to actually make the the nuclear material, the weaponize that material, yeah, you need you still need a state. You still need a, uh, yeah, a, a, a really and big. Stuff, yeah. A rich uranium, yeah. Yeah, you need a big operation that is not going to be able to avoid detection. Right. Um, today, you know, in a hundred years, maybe that looks different. I don't know. Um, but today, it still requires uh, massive inf- infrastructure. Um, so you know, you know, I mean, you you just know. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's such a inter- it's such an interesting dilemma, and that's why I wanted to have you on here, just pick your brain and see what kind of stuff you guys are dealing with at Global Zero. It is such an. an interesting dilemma and it's crazy that in 50 years we've already gotten rid of i don't know what i'm not good at math so i can't tell you what the percentage of it seems like maybe 10 percent. we have 10 percent of the nukes we had 50 years ago is that about right something like that 12 percent you said 70 uh, and then 14 70 000 yeah, and then 14 000 or something we've gotten rid of like 80 percent okay it's pretty good since, since it's since it reaches peak yeah that's pretty amazing I, I definitely didn't know that until I found Global Zero, and I was like, "Wow, this actually is a yeah. reasonable. It seems reasonable. It it is, and I think if if even if we continued at the at the sort of the slow pace of of the last um, several decades, I mean, that's why that's why I feel so optimistic about this issue. Is I I do think um, I do think it's achievable. I do think it's within reach. Um, by you know by date certain, not by you know not some distant remote future that none of us are going to live to see. I think. We could live to see the last nuclear weapon pulled apart, um, but not, but but only if governments prioritize this. Only if governments um, uh, come around to the idea uh, that these things these things are, are more of a liability uh, than an asset. That's, I mean, that's they they have. You're absolutely right um, when you say you know these governments uh, will only act in their own interests. They just need to understand that this is this is absolutely in their national security. Yeah, the only way I can think really think of doing that is if the citizens of the country, and and obviously it may not work for all countries. Although even China, you know, has recently had um, free speech uh, marches and stuff like that. But but basically, if the majority of United States citizens were firmly firm, firmly supported the idea of reducing the U.S. nuclear stockpile and voted on that issue then there's definitely hope for that. Um, in an authoritarian state, it's harder to see how that happens. But, I mean, you have to find a way to make it in... Like, if you want to get rid of nuclear weapons, you have to find a way to make it in their national interest and convince them of that, right? That's the goal. Yeah. That's that's the challenge. Yeah. Yeah, and I do, you know, to your point, I do think the the American public has sort of unique... Uh, unique sway on this issue. If you look at what happened during, you know, during the Cold War, um, you know, the the largest, the largest. Well, I guess this is before the Women's March. Um, you know, one of the largest uh, uh, public 
public demonstrations in U.S. history was the uh, the march in Central Park in June 1982. This is a month before I was born, uh, protesting the Cold War and the arms race. Um, that caught you know that movement uh, caught Reagan's attention, and it also caught uh, Gorbachev's attention. Um, it it helped what what was happening uh, here in the United States with the United States the American public influenced what the thinking in Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, that speaks to uh, sort of the uh, the U.S.'s sort of unique role here um, in, in needing to take, uh, you know, the world is waiting for the U.S. to take leadership. Yeah, on this issue. I agree. Yeah. Uh, the, the United States has has the most sophisticated, most destructive nuclear arsenal. It's the only country uh, in human history to have used nuclear weapons on, on another. Um, and, it, you know, I, I don't think I, if the U.S. doesn't move forward with this, uh, then then I don't see I don't see hope. Um, but I do think um, because we're a democracy and because uh, of the power of, of movements in this country, um, I, I do see it. I do see a path forward. I wonder what that final, uh, what that final encounter of the last two nuke holders on the planet looks like. Uh, those last two people giving up their nukes. I wonder what that exchange looks like. Diffused together at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> on three. I have one last uh, question, but uh, I don't know if we want to end here. I don't know if it's a bit of a tangent, but... um, Go for it. So what is your view or organization's view on missile defense? Because, you know, during the 1980s with Reagan, they wanted this program, SDI, uh, Space Defense Initiative, which was to try to shoot down missiles. And actually the view kind of, of thinkers on this topic, I think was that it's actually kind of more dangerous if you are able to uh, protect yourself from nuclear weapons because it means that um, you can strike without fear of retaliation so it loses its deterrence effect so it could lead to nuclear war if you can actually stop the nuclear weapons. (laughs) The whole rationality of nuclear weapons goes out the window if you can stop them, right? Um, The other thing is, uh, obviously, uh, there's a danger that they'd be leaky, so you wouldn't be able to stop all of them. I mean, even today, the United States has a limited capability to stop some nuclear weapons from potentially rogue states like North Korea and stuff like this. But we don't know how well they work. We don't know if they, if they work. We don't know. Like, obviously, you may not be able to stop a large-scale attack. You wouldn't be able to. Um, do you... So, to stop, I kind of think that having this... Like, assuming we're going to live in a war, world with nuclear weapons for some time... I kind of think it makes sense to have a limited ability to at least try to stop uh, incoming nuclear weapons uh, because, you know, we're dealing... The main threat of nuclear war, I think, is is actually just rogue states and things like that. That's kind of the main nuclear threat, at least in terms of probability, not in terms of outcome, right? There's probability, higher probability of some kind of rogue state, Kim Jong-un or whatever, launching nukes, uh, whereas... You know, that would not necessarily be a global conflict, but it could be extremely dangerous, you know, dangerous to the people who would be affected by it. So it makes sense to have some limited capability. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I just think that, I mean, your characters, your characterization of missile defense technology was generous. I mean, this stuff doesn't work. It's like it's like shooting down a bullet with a bullet. Um, and even when we um, even when we do uh, our own tests, uh, when we know the missile's being launched, we know where it's going, mm-hmm. we know where it came from. Yeah. It's a, it's the kind of missile that can't change direction, um, which hypersonic weapons can. <laughs> um, we still can't, we still can't knock them out of the sky. Right, right. Um, and I think, you know, and I frankly think, you know, um, the, so I, I just, I don't think we can, we can develop a, a we, we, we don't have the technology and it doesn't seem to be, um, uh, no breakthroughs in, an ev- is in evidence, right? Um, so I think the idea um, that we might uh, that it might be worth to really leaning into missile defense 
to help maybe um, boost our odds at picking off sort of a, a rogue state actor or a non-state actor firing off a, uh, an ICBM or, or whatever. Um, you know, the trade-off there is um, really increasing the agitation among countries like Russia, who have, I think, legitimate concerns about missile defense. As you said, uh, missile defense um, uh, undermines uh, the sort of st- strategic value of nuclear weapons. So that makes them uh, feel like, okay, suddenly uh, things aren't as stable as they seem. We don't have we don't have parity. We don't have strategic stability. So what do we have to do? It incentivizes them to, to develop alternative, to develop means more weapons, crazier weapons, more dangerous weapons, mm-hmm. yeah. and you sort of get in this tit for tat arms race. And, you know, is that is that worth the 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 very limited reassurance of a far fetched scenario in which Iran or North Korea pops off an ICBM at you know, at one of the coasts? I don't think so. Uh, particularly when I think, you know, non-state actors are the are the real danger uh, in that respect. Yep. And they're not going to be firing an ICBM. They're going to be smuggling a bomb into a city and blowing, you know, yep. blowing up there. So I just don't think it's worth the trade-offs. Um, I, think, uh, I think the United States needs to be willing to, um, to assume that the concerns around missile defense have some legitimacy and they need to be able to have that conversation. Wow, such a fascinating conversation. It's such a... Uh Interesting goal you guys have at Global Zero. Uh, wishing you guys the best uh, with all of your efforts and this uh, incredibly important uh, journey that you guys are on. Yeah. Is there anything that you want to promote, Derek, while we're here? Uh, your Twitter I'm planning to plug, but is there anything else you want to plug? Oh, yeah. I would just um, I would encourage folks to visit globalzero.org and just check out the work that we're doing. Um, and I would also want folks to know that um, one of the one of the things Global Zero is championing right now uh, is is no first use um, here in the United States. But it's, it's something that we're pushing for in all the nuclear armed states, all nine of them. Um, and there's actually been uh, legislation introduced by uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren uh, and uh, Representative Adam Smith. He's the, the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee. Um, that would make it the policy of the United States to uh, to never use nuclear weapons first in a conflict, yeah. and I think that would open the that would open the door to a lot of really important policy reforms uh, and changes in uh, the way that we deploy nuclear weapons, um, the what the the kind of money that we spend, the kind of weapons that we build. It would be uh, it would be a big step forward um, that I think we could leverage to 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 great effect internationally. So I would encourage folks to you know go to globalzero.org uh, and check it out. Awesome. Yes, uh, definitely check out their website, globalzero.org. Also, you can follow Derek if you want on Twitter. He is at Derek JGZ, as in Derek Johnson, Global Zero. Uh, you can also follow Andrew and I on Twitter if you want. I'm at Julian Was Here. Andrew is at Mars Raider, and we do these episodes every Monday. We hope to have you back next week. Thanks for listening. Yeah, really important uh, cause, Derek. So appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. <laughs>